Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities need it the most. Check out NewDealLeaders.org to see what I'm talking about. Today, we talk about public service from a different perspective. I spoke about the experience of being the spouse of an elected official with Carrie Kreisman, wife of former St. Petersburg mayor and New Deal leader Rick Kreisman. She's the author of An Accidental First Lady on the Front Lines and Behind the Scenes of Local Politics. We talked about the good and the bad parts of integrating public service into a family's life. She's honest about some of the most painful moments and also the surprising benefits. This is a valuable conversation for anyone and their partner who are or even thinking about engaging in public life. Enjoy. Carrie Kreisman, welcome to An Honorable Profession. It is wonderful to be speaking with you today. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to the discussion. So this is a first for an honorable profession, first in terms of having a spouse and elected official, and second, your husband did appear on this podcast, and so you're the first husband and wife team that have been on the podcast in its history. So congratulations on that. Well, thank you. (laughs) You're here today because you published a fascinating book called Accidental First Lady on the Front Lines and Behind the Scenes of Local Politics, where you talk about your experience having your husband serve in elected office and some strategies and the ups and downs to you and your family as a result of those experiences. He's been out now of office for about a year, finishing his term as mayor of St. Petersburg. How has your life changed in that year since he's left elected office? Well, understandably, life is a lot quieter it's still full. It's just full in a different way. We don't particularly him, but we both don't sit kind of on our the edge of our seats or walk on eggshells thinking, are we going to get a call about something or, you know, what's going to come up or what's going to be written or what's going to be said on social media. That's been lifted for the most part. And, and it's nice. I mean, I think most of us, you know, it's human condition to adapt to your situations and until you're out of the situation or environment that you're in, especially when you've been doing it for a long time, you don't realize how you were acting or what you were carrying. And, you know, I think we're just carrying a lot less, you know, and not to say that he left public office, you know, he didn't run away. It was the best job he had, especially being mayor. And we did enjoy it as a couple and as a family most of the time. But it's life's just a lot quieter. We've binged our share of Netflix shows and, you know, taken a couple trips and things and, you know, without worrying about a phone call that he might have to come home for something. I think that's one of the things you talk about in the book is trips get canceled. People get calls in the middle of the night, crises happen. 
Talk a little bit about what it's been like, broad strokes, to be a spouse of an elected official and you know any advice you have for people who are considering or just have now found themselves in that role. I've told people before that I'm lucky to have been, I think I had a gradual introduction to this process. Rick's first office was city council here in St. Petersburg. And it's still public office, and I'm not going to minimize the position, but the burdens and the responsibilities are a lot less. The public platform is not what state house and not what mayor or other offices are. So at least our introduction to political life was gradual. You know, I would definitely say start and don't stop always being yourself. But then I also want to advise that you should be prepared. And when I say be prepared... For any spouse who's, you know, on the sidelines and the front row of politics, know what your spouse stands for. Anticipate questions because they're going to come at you when you least expect it. It could be in car line. It could be in the grocery store. It could be anywhere. And you may not be the one who's elected to office, but you're the next best thing. And people will want to talk to you sometimes. And so just be versed on you know, you don't need to memorize long statements, but be versed on things and just, you know, be up to date on issues and things like that, but always be yourself. And if you don't know the answer to something, that's okay. You know, direct them to a website. But basically, I think, you know, there's not a lot of training out there for public spouses. I think I read somewhere that there's, you know, an orientation, so to speak, for senators, spouses, you know, in Washington and things like that. And it probably goes the same for congressional spouses. But on the local level, there's no training. A lot of it comes by common sense and experience and just navigating, you know, new areas that you didn't expect yourself to be in and just learning as you go. But, you know, if it's something that, you know, either you want to enter in or your spouse or and you decide together that this is something you want to take on, definitely go for it. I think the rewards are greater than the difficult parts. I think anything you embark on in life is going to have some difficulty. And I can say after 22 years, it wasn't easy a lot of the time, but there are definitely rewards. It's just, you know, a lot of adjustment, you know, constantly you have to be, you know, used to maybe getting schedules changed at the last minute, but you can try to preempt some of that too with good communication. So it's just changing what's in your toolbox and how you use the tools and to get through it. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, how it is different when you're the spouse of an elected official? How does that manifest itself in sort of your day-to-day life in maybe unexpected ways? Well, for me, kind of what I described before, there will be Things that, you know, maybe occasional disruptions to your schedule, which can be hard, especially if you have children and they're younger, because you're not just the two of you, you're handling, you know, someone else's life. But lately, within the last five years, I would say social media plays such a large role. And you can't get away from what your spouse does and what people say as much as you want to. I mean, you can stay off of social media, but I would venture to guess that most of the people listening to this are on at least one social media platform. And, you know, that really, it's been, it's always at the forefront of your thinking as much as you may not respond to comments or may not 
post things yourself that would engage comment uh, politically, you can't get away from it. So you have to figure out a way to work within it personally, you know, self-care in the form of exercise and taking care of yourself, engaging in something different, having your own interests aside from your spouse's. For some of the time Rick served, I was a stay-at-home mom that, of course, stay-at-home moms are not at home. It's just a term. We're busy doing other things, but I wasn't working at a job. But in 2008, I did go back to work. And so I, you know, I have my job. I have other volunteer interests that I did apart from his politics. And people like to kind of put him on a pedestal in terms of the job, that politics is something that, you know, and I admire anyone who enters politics and and puts themselves out there. But I said, this is his job. You know, he's no one special. I'm no one special, you know, in terms of anyone else in their job that they do. And so that helped us keep it real because we didn't let it get, it's easy to get into that bubble and never get out, (laughs) you know, the political bubble of being in that world. So, you know, I hope that that answer your question. Absolutely. I mean, I think this is one of the critical things in my experience in 16 years in office is, you know, spouse can play a really critical role in um, not letting the job become your identity because the folks for whom elected office is an identity, it's a dangerous situation for <laughs> for public service and for themselves because you can lose a race and then you more than lose a race, you lose your whole identity and purpose. And so, you know, how did you make sure that Rick, you know, stayed Rick Christman separate from being mayor of Christman? I think I was a pretty keen observer from the outside looking in and could kind of see some of the potential pitfalls that politics, you know, that are involved in politics. And again, we go back to communication. He and I've always had the kind of relationship that we could honestly talk to each other about things, you know, in terms of, you know, if I saw an issue or he sees an issue with me, he'll tell me and I will tell him. And if I ever felt like something was getting to be too much, or we needed to talk about something that, you know, that I could see, like we could be going down a certain road, we'd pull it back and, you know, you kind of get a reality check. And I used to always say that, you know, someday this will not be a part of our lives. So we have to live, you know, and again, not to minimize the position, but if this is a job, it's just a job. It's one of many, one of thousands of types of jobs. And this is the one that you chose. And, You know, and you also, I think, have to remember that it's maybe not for everyone, but it's an honorable job that, you know, you have thousands of people in some cases that vote for you and give you their seal of approval. That's a big burden to carry. And anyone who doesn't look at that and understand the enormity of it, you know, I think if you view it through that lens, then you can help keep everything in perspective. Absolutely. I mean, I remember times when I come home late after a meeting and, you know, like I moved this motion and we did this and we did that. And my wife was like, that's great. Um, now take out the trash. and exactly. get to the store. <laughs> There's three dogs waiting with their leashes. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Hey, everyone. I just want to take a moment to recommend another great podcast. It's called Sidebar. It's discussions with state and national experts about protecting our most critical individual and civil rights. The co-hosts are two law school deans, Jackie Gardena and Mitch Winnick. For more information on Sidebar, go to sidebarmedia.org or wherever podcasts are found. Now, back to our conversation. 
You do identify some painful moments. You identify that your son was targeted at school, both because of his father's positions, but also because of his Judaism. I'll tell you, I was the son of a mayor who was also when I was in high school and was targeted because of my Judaism. So I know exactly how painful that can be. Can you talk about some of the harder moments and how you navigated those? Yeah, specifically that one or just other harder moments? Would you That one and, 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 and the other hard ones as well. Sure. I'll start with that one. You know, I picked him up from school. He was a freshman in high school and we were only a few weeks into the school year. It was right before the primary for Rick's second term as mayor. It was 2017. And, you know, I'll start by saying every campaign is hard in its own way. (laughs) But this one was particularly divisive in the city. It was the most expensive campaign in the city's history to date. So, you know, things were being said. And again, like I talked about social media, it was, you know, out of control what was being said on social media. And Kids were saying things to him at school, you know, and you could tell how they were saying it, that it was repeating what their parents were saying at home and, you know, just hearing conversations from their parents and taking it out on Samuel at school. And so, you know, so I pick him up from school. He's a freshman. He's not driving, of course. And I see tears in his eyes and I said, well, what's wrong? And I think many of us have heard of that app called Snapchat and it's an app and it's any of the listeners haven't heard about it, you take a picture or send a message and it disappears immediately, but you can send it to a lot of people. So Samuel had screenshot what was sent out on a Snapchat to about maybe 50 or 60 other students in the freshman class. It was an image of Samuel's face superimposed over skeletons in a grave. And at the top of the screen, there was a Google search, you know, that said dead Jewish bodies. So the kid who sent it had Googled dead Jewish bodies and then put Samuel's face over it and just sent that out. So, you know, here we go. You know, I have a couple of issues here. First of all, it was hateful. It was a crime. It was anti-Semitism. And it was my son, our son. And it was days before a primary. And when I say that, I don't say that any election is important than crimes that are committed toward us or our children. But you're trying to balance a lot of things here by keeping out of respect for our sons. You know, we didn't necessarily want a newspaper article and it could have easily been, you know, front page, you know, right before a contentious primary where, you know, many people were hoping that my husband would lose outright in the primary. And truth be told, he was down in the polls. And, you know, then there's an anti-Semitic attack toward our son. And but, you know, we had to do our due diligence. We started with the school and they dealt with it on their end through, you know, their channels of how they deal with things. And I think he was ultimately suspended, but not expelled. The police did come to our house, but it was very low key. So there was a report, but it wasn't done in terms of where it could have, you know, be found by nobody hid it, but it wasn't put out there to be an article or something, you know, in, in the newspaper. So, but it was still difficult. I mean, he had to go back to school. He was asked if he wanted this kid out of his classes. I mean, to put a freshman in that position to be making those decisions. And, you know, as a family, we knew it came from the parents, although the kid was at fault. We knew where it came from and we knew that it could be a learning opportunity for the kid. And so we didn't push for anything like arrest 
or expulsion or anything like that. So that was difficult. But, you know, our son did deal with it off and on for a couple of years in the sense that he felt guilty, like he thought he would ruin the other kids' college chances. I said, you did not. I said, he did what he did. He's been a good student since. And you guys can be in the same room together. He apologized. You've moved on. And so, but it was very hard at the time because our son's, you know, well-being took precedence. But we were underwater in this campaign, you know. And then the other difficult moment that stands out, you know, there were some that were difficult, but not so significant that they, you know, really gave us pause or gave me pause as a political spouse. But in 2019, I was diagnosed with cancer. And, you know, as anyone who receives a health scare or particularly a cancer diagnosis, you deal with it in your own way. And I was slowly telling family every couple of days, I'd tell some friends, then I'd tell some more friends because I had accepted it and I was ready to get my surgery and move on with treatment. And I was good to go, you know, and, and just ready to do what I had to do. But when I told friends, I had to relive it through them and their shock and sadness and worry and all that. So my first chemotherapy session, Rick came with me and it was on a Thursday and he was out for the whole day because they tend to take a while and it's particularly first one took eight hours. But anyway, he was out the whole day. And so, you know, as a public official, you know that your calendars are public record or can be accessible by the media. And so one of the media outlets or local newspaper wanted to know where he was. And Rick's communications director told them family business. So, you know, I don't know that what answer, I don't think any answer would have satisfied them, but maybe no one anticipated anyone asking, you know, but that weekend it was discussed, Rick and I discussed that maybe I consider putting something out there, doing an interview or two about it so that, you know, cause I was going to have five more chemotherapy sessions and his goal was to come with me to them. So is he going to be out every Thursday, every three weeks, you know, people weren't going to stop asking. And so I was very resentful at first at having to tell my story because of his job. <laughs> so, but I thought about it and I decided that it did make sense in the long run to not have the media keep pressing and wondering where he was and inventing their own story potentially. And so I decided I would write something. I would put it on Facebook on a Friday morning at 8 a.m. And I'd include a photograph and any media outlet could take it and print it verbatim or cite it verbatim, show the photograph. I don't care. But I wasn't going to do any interviews about it because I didn't want them to misquote me or anything like that. So I, you know, I put everything in there. I didn't mention what kind of cancer because all cancer is bad, but I had ovarian and uterine, but particularly ovarian is one of the deadliest gynecological cancers because there's no test for it currently. In fact, they're pushing genetic testing as a resource and some elective surgeries in advance of getting the disease. But back to what I did, and I believe that that worked well, but it was a hard place to get to at first. But when I finally sat down and wrote what I wanted to say, I felt good about it. And then I received support tenfold. You know, I looked at my position as a you know, political spouse prominently in this area because of Rick's position as mayor. And I thought, you know what, I have a lot of people that are praying for me and hoping that I do well. How lucky am I? 
you know, and as opposed to other people who may not be in the public spotlight and therefore not know people and maybe people aren't offering help or maybe not as many people are praying for them, you know, so I tried to turn it around like that. But, you know, what started off as a difficult decision and what I felt was a very an imposition on my private health scare, <laughs> you know, I turned it into something that I think ended up being positive. Yeah, I'm so glad it turned out positive and that you're here with us today talking because, you know, it is hard to increasingly hard to draw lines between things that are, you know, in the really private and things that are public and the public's expectations and the media's expectations seem to be growing every day. And it's, you know, it's not something you didn't put your name on the ballot yet. You had to talk about your private life in a really fundamental way. Yeah. So, but now I'm an advocate for ovarian cancer and, you know, I talked to medical students and nursing students and, you know, so I didn't know what getting cancer would mean to me and not everybody does that. And that's fine. Everybody takes their diagnosis and does with it what they will. And none of it is right. None of it is wrong, you know, and I don't know if I said that right, but you know what I'm getting at, but that's what I've chosen to do. And I ended up posting on social media from every one of my chemo sessions just to demystify that process. Because once everybody got over the diagnosis, it was the pity about having to go through chemo. And I looked at it as, boy, I get to go through chemo because they can fix this. You know, that's how I looked at it. That's a great mindset. Can you talk about some of the surprisingly great moments that you would have not otherwise experienced had you not supported Rick in this endeavor and figured out a way to do it within your family? Yeah, I mean, we definitely have, you know, there's a lot of things, advantages, if you will, that come with politics. I mean, it's not an easy job, but there are definitely things that we get to experience that had he not been in politics, I know pretty certainly that we would have not been able to experience. But I will start with the people that you get to meet, because you meet a lot of people, you know that, and whether it's dinners or campaigning. And I got to meet some really interesting people. And here in Florida, we have Wikiwachi, which is a little bit north of St. Petersburg, Mermaid Lagoons. Well, I was on the phone dialing for votes one night, and I met the one of the original Wiki Watching Mermaids. And these are young women that have to have incredible lung capacity and athleticism to be underwater for this long. And they still have the mermaids today. But I got to talk with this woman. She told me quickly that she was already voting for Rick. So we had a nice conversation, you know, about Wiki Watchy. I met a lovely neighbor who came to our house the night that we had had protesters during the social justice after George Floyd was killed that summer of social justice protests and things like that that were going on. And we had protesters two weeks in a row. And, you know, that's their right. We were fine. We were in our house. We were never in any danger. But, you know, this neighbor came up to me, came to my front door because she just said, I just want to give you a hug. You know, we're just so worried about you and we appreciate you guys. And, you know, and I'd never met her. She walked from about six blocks away. So there's the people. And I could tell you more stories about that. But we got, you know, some of the really great moments. I talk about it as the 15 minutes of fame that sometimes some of us get to experience in our lifetime. You know, we got to meet Ringo Starr when Rick presented a key to the city back when he was on city council. We traveled as a family with the Tampa Bay Rays and other dignitaries to Cuba when the Tampa Bay Rays played the Cuban national team in 2016. And what an experience that was. It was our first time, Rick had been before, but it was our first time 
going and meeting the Cuban people and seeing, you know, what so many of us hear about and what is a mystery to a lot of us, seeing it firsthand. You know, one of the best experiences was a Tuesday night we were sitting at home, both of us on each computer, and Rick gets an email and it's from the White House and it's an invitation to one of the White House holiday parties. And we're like, wow, you know, this is really cool. And it was on a Tuesday evening and we would have had to fly on a Thursday or a Friday. So first thing I said was, I wonder if the kids can come. And Rick wrote back and asked and they said no. (laughs) So we just said, well, we understood. But when they wrote back again and asked for our ID and, you know, just our credentials so they could run and check on us and everything, he sent back the kids information and dates of birth. And I think our daughter had a driver's license. Our son didn't yet, but sent her information. And anyway, they sent back four invitations. (laughs) So we were all able to go to the White House Christmas party. But one of the best parts was we walked into the room. There were waiters and people passing champagne and and hors d'oeuvres and things like that. And after standing for about an hour through two checkpoints in heels, I would have loved a glass of champagne. But then I saw the podium up at the front of the room and I thought, hmm, I saw the staircase to the right. And I thought, I can see how this is going to unfold potentially. And the rope line hadn't been put up yet. And so I said, you know what? I said, we better go stand over there. Nobody was standing there yet. And so we did. And it started to fill in. And then the rope line went up. And then President Obama's one of his staffers came by and started to tell us all how this was going to go, that they were going to come down the stairs, President and Mrs. Obama, and go up to the podium and speak. And then they would work the rope line and we were to hand our cell phone to our neighbor who would take our picture. And then we would do the same for them. No selfies with the president, but plenty of hugs to go around. I think Rick and my son got high fives and Jordan, our daughter, and I got hugs from the first lady, which was really awesome. So I'm glad I waited on the champagne and went to the front row. And, (laughs) you know, I'll never forget that. And, you know, I looked at, I think they'd hosted 20 parties that year. It was 2015. And so it wasn't just one holiday party. They host 20 of those for various guests. And so I don't know if you ever, ever had the chance to go. I did not. I've been to other events, I think probably with your husband over time at the White House. But I mean, I think that's also a product of you having attended enough political events that you could sort of anticipate how the evening was going to unfold and where to position yeah. yourself. That's a yeah. veteran move. So anyway, those are a couple of highlights that stand out. You know, of 22 years, there, there's a lot of great moments. But honestly, you know, we keep in touch with a lot of the people that he worked with for eight years with city staff. And, you know, so it's the relationships and, you know, he's always said in business and, you know, and just in life in general, relationships are important. I mean, they, you know, they, they come back to you and, you know, you never know people you meet years later, but I've been lucky to meet people. I know I never would have met or maybe talked to in a room if I wasn't seated next to them. I got to sit between Rick and Dan Rather at a dinner one night and navigate that conversation, which was really enjoyable. You know, it's you have to take a deep breath and get over who's in your presence <laughs> so that you can actually have a conversation and not be starstruck a little bit. But that was another highlight. Absolutely. Can I ask, now that your kids are a little bit older and have experienced all this, what are their impressions of elected life and service? Are they interested in politics? Do they see themselves running for office someday? Do you have any sense of that? Well, as we know, you never say never because I don't think Rick envisioned this. But with that said, our daughter, 
you know, they're both engaged in what's going on in their communities and in the news and they're faithful voters and things like that. But our daughter has never expressed an interest in politics. In May, she's getting her degree, her master's degree in art history from the University of Texas at Austin. And so she'll be in that field and possibly later pursue a Ph.D., Our son is a sophomore in college, and if he hasn't changed his major from political science to public, I think it's public administration or public policy, he's going to be doing that. So he may still be in the realm. I don't know that he will run for public office, but I love the fact that he's the more political of the two where, you know, he'll engage in conversations and he likes to talk about politics. And I truly believe it's not a product of what Rick did. I think it is just his interest, but he's got some friends who are definitely on the opposite side of the aisle politically. And he'll tell us how they have great conversations and can talk about it, which is a really hard to do, as you know. I mean, that's part of, I think, what the problem is without getting too political, but is that not that we're different, but that we can't sit down in a room and talk to people who may not believe exactly the same way we do. But He can do this with his friends. And I really love to see that. So as far as how they felt about politics, I don't think it was a choice because Rick's first office was Jordan was one and a half. So she's practically a baby still. Samuel was born into it. Rick was on city council in his second term, I believe, or third term on city council when Samuel was born. So it's all they knew that their dad was either running for something or elected to something. They took it in stride, you know, all the times that he spent six years serving in Tallahassee. So that, which isn't just during session, as you know, it starts in October or November with committee meetings. And sometimes if there's a special session, it can go past May when session ends. So they took it in stride. We just made it part of what our family does. And we never forced them to do anything. I could probably think of one or two times that our daughter was interviewed The first time she voted, she was interviewed because she was a politician's daughter. And I don't know that our son has ever been interviewed, but I think they take it in stride. But we are quick to remind them that when we're enjoying some of the perks that have come with political life, that, you know, why we're here and why we got this and that it doesn't mean that we're better or more deserving of anyone else. It's because of what their father does that we are lucky enough to go to the White House, go to Cuba, you know, whatever the case may be. So we like, you know, we try to keep it real and did try to keep it real. But as adults, you know, and I think as a family, we've always supported each other. But as adults, you know, I know they're proud of their dad and what he's done. I love that. I grew up in it. And I don't think I, I definitely didn't appreciate it at the time. But then clearly it had an impact. And, you know, it's one of those things you never know what the soft skills or the understanding that you absorbed sometimes inadvertently around the dinner table and can play a role later in life in important moments. I just want to thank you for sharing your story. It's a story that, as you mentioned, you know, I think think spouses, you know, at the White House or in Congress, you know, there's training and just a little bit of discussion of recognition of the role that 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 they play in those roles. But at the local level where it's actually much it's much more complicated because you're going to see everyone at the grocery store, at the really games or the pickup lines. There isn't a lot of training or discussion. And I think your book really adds to that conversation in a thoughtful, meaningful way. And so I just want to appreciate you for taking the time to write it and share it with us today. Well, thank you. And thank you for having me. And thanks for your kind words. And 
Yeah, I appreciate that. And I hope it is helpful to those or at least interesting. You know, I know that not just political people read it, but that's obviously, you know, how I started writing it, you know, it's something for people in this world. (laughs) So I appreciate you having me on. Absolutely. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. Thanks to the team at New Deal for producing this episode. We encourage you to bring honor to public service. And because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars are used in the making of this podcast.